Will you pray with me, please? Lord, it is exactly because of who you are and the power and authority that is in your name that we gather here. Lord, through the work of your Son, you have so unselfishly shared this authority in this kingdom, this eternity that you have won, this life that you have recreated again with us, your people, and we give you thanks. And we raise our voices to declare exactly that. Lord, we thank you that your words bring healing that your words bring life, that your words called us into, you, into being and your words are still recreating us. And Father, we pray that in this time too, your words will cut through, through all others and all the noise as we find ourselves re-identified once again, recreated, made new, through the washing of your word as it speaks over us. Father, make our hearts attentive and wide open to whatever it is you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our theme this morning talking about words, we have a um, distinct pleasure of welcoming a special guest to share a message with us this morning. Dr. Craig Matson uh, is in his 13th year at Trinity Christian College in Chicago. He is the chair of their um, communications department, and last year was selected as the ARCU Lecturer of the Year. ARCU stands for Association of Reformed Colleges and Universities, and he's been traveling around sharing his message. Before that, he was a radio talk show host uh, in mornings in Florida for 14 years. Um, we have a great pleasure. He's been interacting with our communications department in the last couple of days and um, is going to share a message with us now in chapel before returning back to responsibilities in Chicago. Will you please join me in welcoming Dr. Craig Matson? When does chapel end today? When you're done. Okay. Here's what I think I have to say to you today. You do not yet know what your voice is capable of, but God does. And God's salvation in and around and through you is to restore and to renew and in a sense to turn your voice inside out. Prepare to be surprised. Let me give you an establishing shot for today's talk. The book of Job, it's huge. I will give you one image from the first 31 chapters of this 42-chapter book. Imagine that you have been standing in front of what used to be a house. You've been standing there for some time. All that is left of this what looks like bombed-out residence is the porch. There are four men sitting on the front porch, and you have been listening to them speak. The first, his head shaved, has been speaking as you have never heard anybody speak before, in a broad range of genres and tones and affect. He's been speaking in remarkably eloquent poetry. He's been speaking in desperately angry lament. He's been speaking in hymnody 
and what sounds at times like a sermon and a courtroom address. He's been speaking a great deal. But as you have listened to him, a catastrophe has happened. He has stopped speaking. The other three men have been speaking as well. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They've been speaking in a very different way than the first man with the shaven head. They've been speaking in wise sayings, proverbs, very balanced, very symmetrical, very even. The universe is knowable. The moral world is understandable. For every effect, there is a cause. For every consequence, there must have been some trigger. But they too have come to the end of their words. And this for you is genuinely unnerving because as leaders in your community and beyond, when everybody else had run out of words, these men always had something to say. These men always knew what to say and their words are now emptied out. They are mute. You, you're Elihu, the fifth person to arrive in the book of Job in the 32nd chapter. What do you say? What can you say in the face, in the, in the disconcertment of this silence? Well, what strikes me as I read and I hope you will read this afternoon what Elihu has to say, or tonight, whenever you find breathing space and world and life, is that he's angry. That startles me. I'm not sure I would feel angry. I would feel afraid, but he is angry. That makes me listen to the tonality of his speaking. That makes me listen to the the voice of his speaking. That makes me listen for the affect in his talk. He's mad. What is he angry at? Well, it becomes apparent that he's angry with Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He's angry at them because of all their speeches. That's what he calls them. He says, I will not answer him with your speeches. And you can kind of hear the contempt in his voice. Your speeches. I'm done with that. Their talk, he makes very plain, has been emptied out. And it makes him mad. I know a lot of people don't like Elihu. If you've read the book of Job and you've made it through the first 31 exhausting chapters, when Elihu shows up, you feel like saying, no more, we're done. Let's just get to the voice in the whirlwind at the end. Let's do the epilogue and let's be so done with these speeches. But I like Elihu. He speaks as a young man. He speaks as a young person who, boy, in in a certain sense, he shouldn't be talking at all. And he's kind of aware of that. But he is moved into, he is propelled into speech. He interests me. He also says a lot of the same things that the voice in the whirlwind says at the end of the book. That makes me trust him a little more. Some people think he's a windbag or a drunk, 
But they also thought that about Peter in the first part of the book of Acts. He must be drunk. I wouldn't rush to accusations of intoxication. Elihu is worth giving an ear to. What else is he mad about? What else is he angry about? I think he's angry at Job. He makes it pretty clear he's angry at Job. And what angers him is a little bit confusing. He's angry at Job because Job has been practicing what he calls empty talk. But it's not just that. It's not just that it's empty talk like his three sort of uh, uh, overly vocal friends. Job has a fantasy that makes Elihu angry. Job has this dream. He has this dream, and you see it as you listen to the speeches of Job throughout the book. He has a dream of confronting God. He turns prayer into this kind of courtroom scene. This is his dream. If only I could speak to God face to face. He says this sort of over and over again. I would lay, he says, I would fill my mouth with arguments. And he would answer me, and I would understand what he has to say to me. That's Job's fantasy. And it makes Elihu angry because Elihu thinks he has completely misunderstood the speaking situation. God, Elihu says in so many words, is not up there on the judge's bench and you hear the sort of smooth-talking, clever, eloquent, lawyer, self-advocate. That is not at all the situation. Here is what Elihu says is the situation in the 33rd chapter of Job. God is greater than any mortal. Please don't tuck him onto a judge's bench. God is greater than any mortal. Why do you contend against him? Why do you treat him like somebody you can sort of hash stuff out with? Why do you contend against him saying he will answer none of my words? He doesn't talk to me. Elihu says God speaks in one way and in two, though people do not perceive it. And Elihu goes on to explain how God's speech actually works. It's not to be imagined like this. I stand here, God speaks there, toe-to-toe, we hash this out. Instead, in Elihu's understanding of God's speech, it is polylateral. It comes at us from every side of creation. We are immersed in God's speech. We are suspended in God's speech. God speaks to us, says Elihu, in the creation. It's like the climate. God is the climate that conditions our communication. This complicates the speaking situation for Job. Now, as I think about the things that make Elihu mad about Job's three friends, all their tidy, wise proverbs, I recognize something of that in our culture, don't you? Uh, Maybe we're not a very proverb-dense culture, but we have a lot of wise sayings. We have a lot of gurus, a lot of TED Talks, right? We've got a lot of people advising us, perfecting us, helping us manage the world, We've got books that tell us how to be better focused, better fit, have better sex, communicate better, be better professionals, 
there's always something that we can be working on. A lot of maxims in our culture. And these maxims, because they're so proliferate, because they're so profuse, I don't know about you, but I often feel like they're empty. Like, well, we'll just wait till they see what the next study says about the effects of caffeine on my exercise. Probably they'll say something else next month. It feels like empty talk. And then when I think about Job and what makes Elihu mad about Job in this speaking situation, I think about the ways that our public speech works today. Very often, our public speakers, whether they're politicians or pastors, I guess those are two sort of public speaking situations that we're pretty familiar with, uh, they tend to speak with this kind of charismatic intimacy as if they know you personally. Back off, I want to say. Back off. You don't know me intimately. You don't know me. Despite your charisma, you don't know me. The speaking situation is not so simple. It's much more complex than that. But let's draw this concern of Ellie Hughes into our own community, or communities, I should say. Here at Dort, for me back at Trinity, Let's think about, let's sort of listen to our voicings in community. Let's listen to the ways that we talk. Maybe you've had catastrophe in your life. Maybe you haven't yet had catastrophe in your life. I don't know. All of life feels sort of catastrophic. So at some level, we can all identify with Job. It's always overwhelming. Let's think about how we sound today. So last night, I went to the Fruited Plain Cafe. It's a pretty great place. You guys are lucky. We only have, like, chains on suburbs of the South, uh, South Chicago. So I'd love a Fruited Plain where I live. And I was sitting there working on something or other. And two uh, women students came into the cafe, and they sat down at the table right next to me. And they started to talk. They had a lot to talk about about the day. I didn't actually, honestly, I didn't eavesdrop. I was focused. <laughs> and another person came in, another woman student, and this is also something that doesn't happen on the south side of Chicago. She had a large Bible. She walked in and put that Bible on the table. That doesn't happen at Starbucks where I live very often. And immediately she pulled out her iPhone or something and plugged in her earbuds and put her earbuds in and was zoom zooming into Scripture. This is a beautiful scene altogether, right? But one of the women students uh, at the table next to me leaned over and touched her arm, and she looked up and was startled to realize, oh, you're, we're friends. We know each other. She hadn't noticed who she was sitting next to. Well, I'm not feeling smug, because I also have my earbuds in listening to something on Pandora. But it strikes me that no technology has so emptied out our speech, our voicings, has so muted our communities as the earbud. That technology alone has put our communities in many ways on mute. It's uncannily quiet sometimes. Now, I, don't th I love earbuds. I'm wearing them right now. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love earbuds. They're great. Um, in fact, Jacob Weiner, writing in Slate, has said that the earbud has reintroduced us to the intimate dynamics of the human voice. 
I listen to podcasts, maybe you do too, or just even listening to music. This voice is like right here in your ear. It's more intimate than the, the closest person to you. And Weiner speculates that this might create a possibility for empathy as we encounter these voices intimately. We, we might be able to empathize more with more voices. I love that thesis. I don't agree with it entirely. Because there's something about the human voice that uh, sometimes you just hate somebody's voice. That's a dark truth. You don't like hearing them speak. And, I mean, they're great people. You might think they're, 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 they're beautiful, intelligent, they always have interesting things to say, but their voice grates on you. Or their laugh. Sometimes it's just a laugh. I hate it when she laughs. Okay. That is very hard to change. I, at least in, in my sake. Perhaps I'm a smaller soul than you. But I cannot change my opinions about people's voices just like, oh, okay, I'll think about them differently. It's sort of like you like it or you don't sort of thing. I don't know if empathy always comes with just getting used to somebody's voice. So, you know, we're all aware of this, right? If you ever listen to yourself in a recording, you ever feel repulsed by your own voice? Ooh. Right? So I was in radio. I was not a talk show host. That's grand. I was just a music host in a morning show. Sort of segues between songs. That guy, I know. So um, I heard my voice a lot. And I got calls about my voice, especially when I started. I was very nasal. I come from Michigan, where you don't have an accent. You're from Michigan, that's how people talk, right? But I found out I have an accent. It's very Midwestern. People in Michigan smile when they talk, like this. And so it all comes out your nose. I didn't realize that when I started. <laughs> but I got calls. You're not from Florida. I was also sibilant, had a lot of extra S's. I don't know why. My voice suddenly became this kind of fragile project. My voice had to become more sanctified. Well, I don't know where you feel risky about your voice, whether it's in small groups at church or whether it's, you know, speaking up in class or whatever, but just voicing is a risky thing sometimes. And so we have two coping mechanisms that we use to deal with this. First of all, I think that we sometimes try to use as little of our voices as is possible. So we don't vary our pitches, we keep our voices at a low volume, we don't emphasize any sort of vocal quality, and we speak at a sort of moderate rate, and we never change. So we have these kind of flat voices. Um, I call this the natural voice, just trying to be me voice. I'm just trying to be real with you voice. I admire this, and I see it all over the place. A lot of Hollywood actors, a lot of voiceovers on television, and a lot of my students, they use about this much of their voice. I call that the natural voice. But the irony of it is that your natural voice is often profoundly shaped by your culture. All right? It's profoundly shaped by cultural norms. More than you're paying attention to. You're saying, I'll just talk like me. I'll just be me with you. But actually, it's really hard to do that. Your natural voice probably isn't very natural. It's just you're using a little bit of it. So, like, two cultural norms that sometimes show up in your voices, I'm guessing. One is vocal fry. A lot of people put their voices in the back of their throat, so they sound like this. Okay. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of criticism of women for doing this, but it's a man thing, too. 
everybody does this. Everybody practices vocal fry, sort of in the back of the throat. I think it's because I show I can't really be affected by anything. Another uh, vocal quality that shows up a lot in people's voices without their noticing is what you call upspeak. You know, so you end every sentence on an up note, even if you're not asking a question. Now, when you put those two vocal qualities together, you have a thing of beauty. But um, <laughs> that's our natural voice. Another coping mechanism that we sometimes use to deal with the risk of voice is called what I call the theatrical voice. And this is the person who is always on. Whenever you speak to this person, they're up and ready for you. Their amplifiers are, are on. They're plugged in. And they sound enthusiastic, and they sound ready for whatever you're proposing. That just sounds great to me. I actually tend towards this myself. And I like this vocal quality, too. I mean, it's very hopeful. It's very, uh, it's, it's, it, you know, they don't wear their emotions on their sleeve. But you know what? People who speak that way, and I know, are often fatigued. They're often sounding great, but they're overwhelmed. So the weird thing about voicing and dealing with the risk of voicing with others is that very often the coping mechanisms we use actually isolate us and may eventually mute us, and they generate empty talk. There's a lot of noise, but not a lot of fullness. So let me ask, that's maybe how we experience empty speech in our communities. You can tell me if that's right afterwards today. What does God do about empty speech in the text that we're looking at in Job 32 and a few chapters after that? What does God do about that? I think he does two things. He gives vocal rest and he gives vocal fullness. Vocal rest. You ever been on vocal rest? Your doctor asks you not to speak or you have laryngitis so you don't speak. Vocal rest. One of the things that Elihu tells Job is that he doesn't have to talk. Be silent, he says. Now, I suppose you could hear this as, would you shut up, Job? But I don't think it's that way. I think it's more like, you know what? You don't have to talk. Vocal rest. Let's reimagine your speech for a moment, beginning with vocal rest. Maybe that's what some of us need today as well. But it's not like God just likes us to be quiet. Like I sometimes feel about my kids in the back of the van. Let's have vocal rest now. That's enough. This will be good for you kids. I th God loves speech. He loves a fullness and abundance and copy of speech. In fact, he fills Elihu with speech. Elihu describes himself, this is a little rough for a dry campus, but he, he describes himself as a wine bottle about to burst. Is this a dry campus? Okay, all right, just checking. So like, all right, so like a pop can <laughs> that you just shook. That's how Elihu feels. And he describes this as the experience of God filling him. And he says, I have to talk. This is God's spirit in me propelling me into speech. I have to talk. So God gives vocal rest to Job by giving vocal fullness to Elihu. I think that's a dynamic in community. God gives words to some of us so that others of us can be quiet and rest, and then it turns around. 
Job gets vocal fullness. You know how he has this dream, this, this fantasy of speaking before God like they're in some sort of law and order scene? That's an old show, right? So reruns, I guess, is what you'd have to hail to. But some sort of courtroom scene. Elihu has a completely different fantasy for Job. His fantasy for Job runs like this. In the 33rd chapter, again, he describes those people whose souls are, they've come near to the pit. That's how Job feels right now. Their lives are brought to death. And then he says, if there should be one of them, if there should be for one of them an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, one who declares a person upright, and he is gracious to that person and says, let me stop for a moment, he's talking about himself. He believes that he is Job's advocate here. He is Job's mediator. And this is what he wants to say to God on Job's behalf. Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his, of his youthful vigor. And then, this is what he imagines for Job. He says he prays. Job prays to God and is accepted by him. And he comes into his presence with joy. And God repays him for his righteousness, which is a big surprise. And that person, listen to this, that person sings to others and says, I sinned and perverted what was right, and it was not paid back to me. Elihu's vision for Job is that he would sing. His vision on the far side of vocal rest is a fullness of voice. That's what Elihu wants for Job. And you know what? It happens. Because in the epilogue of Job, Job does two speech acts that are completely surprising. The first is, he prays for his friends. His friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, those windbags who had become his enemies. He describes them as his enemies. He says, you're like strangers to me. I don't even know you. And at the end of Job, he prays for them. He could never have expected that. This is a completely fresh, new, innovative speech act for Job. And the second one, he gives thanks to his community. So if you know Job, about halfway through the book, he describes how he has been everyone's benefactor. How everyone in the community was a recipient of his generosity. He was always giving, giving, giving. And he says that when, when he came by, the young men would put their hands over their mouths. I don't like that part of Job. He sounds a little smug. But at the end of the book, that's, that goes topsy-turvy. Because Job now is the beneficiary. His community brings him gifts. So his new speech act, thank you. Thank you very much. Something he'd never expected to say. Thank you. Job is brought into a kind of vocal fullness, a vocal newness. His voice is made capable of speech that he could never have imagined. So that's what God is doing in this text to heal vocal emptiness and to bring vocal freshness. What's he doing here? I really don't know. I have a guess or two. But that's a question you'll need to go out of chapel with today. We tend, as I said, to speak either naturally or naturally or theatrically. But I'd like to propose that we try to speak imminently. 
that we speak in our imminent voices. That's a weird phrase. But what I mean by that is the voices that we have never imagined for ourselves. The voices that are new and fresh and, and innovative and striking and sound other than us. I think we should be listening for newness in each other's voice. There, did you hear that? You've never spoken that way before. I think we should be listening for newness in our own voice because I believe this is what God is doing among us vocally. Someone has said that God saves us every way we need saving, and we need saving vocally no less than any other way. Our voices are flat, our voices are pretentious, our voices are narrow and confined and too sharply attenuated and too low, perhaps, whatever your particular voice is like. But God is making our voices new. How do I know this? Well, think resurrection. You know, after the resurrection, nobody recognizes Jesus' voice. It's the strangest thing. Like Mary meets him in the garden. She's standing three feet from him. She doesn't recognize his voice. She can't see clearly, but she doesn't recognize his voice. Peter, on the boat, 100 feet out in the water, hears Jesus yell from the shore, thinks maybe it's Jesus, but is not sure. The men on the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize Jesus' voice. They talk to him a long time, and they hear him talk a long time. They even have supper with him, and they don't recognize his voice. Jesus, after the resurrection, has this voice that has arrived somehow that is utterly new. And that's in your future, too. A voice that you couldn't imagine. Like, if you could hear yourself, you know how you hear yourself in a recording and you're like, that's me? If you could hear this voice, the imminent voice, the yet-to-arrive voice, you would say, that's me? But I think that is the voice God is bringing into our present. John, in his first epistle, says, we do not yet know what we will be. But when he comes, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And I want to say, we do not yet know how we will sound, but we will sound like him. And that is something to put our hopes in. But the future is always coming into the present, as N.T. Wright likes to say. The future is always coming into the present. So be listening for your imminent voice your yet-to-arrive voice as you speak the truth in love in this community. Amen. May the God who owns the past and is redeeming it is with you in every moment of the present and is breaking the future in even now in your life. May he be with you in this day, guiding you forward, making you new for his glory in your fullness. Amen. Have a great day.